Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss with a dermatologist the skin problems stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic. We want to make sure if we're not going to use hand sanitizers and we want to favor hand washing that we do it properly for infection control issues. We'll talk about the renewed importance of wellness for those who find themselves suddenly working from home. That's one of the important things is people get so zoned in, but shut off time should also be respected. Otherwise, then that cycle feeds itself, which triggers things like anxiety. And we'll hear from two health leaders about the planning that goes into bringing college students back to campus. People become desensitized, so they see a message and it might stick the first time and then the third time they just don't acknowledge it. And so by changing out the messages regularly, people stay engaged with the same topic. All that along with a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about the renewed importance of wellness for those who are working from home. Then we'll learn about pandemic resources for college campuses. But first, Upstate's Chief of Dermatology discusses skin problems related to the COVID-19 pandemic. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The pandemic may be having an effect on the skin of some people because of constant mask wearing and hand washing. Here to talk with me about what to do is Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Farah, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Well, first, I'd like to ask you about the types of skin conditions you've seen that are related to prolonged contact with personal protective equipment. Sure. So um, among the most common um, skin conditions uh, would be rashes. And uh, those rashes are usually uh, either de novo rashes, meaning kind of new onset skin problems from the uh, personal protective equipment, or uh, exacerbation of already existing skin problems that people may have. So, for example, as far as the face is concerned, uh, you may have heard the um, expression, the so-called mask knee, uh, and that refers to just uh, facial rashes, which could be acne, uh, it could be new onset acne, or it could be exacerbation of old acne. Uh, rosacea, which is a somewhat related uh, condition. Uh, it could also be uh, exacerbation of previous rashes like seborrheic dermatitis or even atopic dermatitis, which can occur on the face. Or it could be the new onset of a rash uh, like an allergic contact dermatitis or an allergy to some of the personal protective equipment. And the same principle uh, applies to the hands. Uh, you can have exacerbation of pre-existing conditions uh, like uh, atopic dermatitis or other hand rashes if you've had psoriasis on your hands, for example, or it could be the onset of a new problem like an allergy to the gloves or the sanitizers or uh, skin irritation from overzealous hand washing or sanitizer use. So it sounds like you really have to figure out what's going on before you can do anything to either treat it or try to prevent it. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, and so, you know, at one point, if you try reasonable measures, which, you know, we can talk about in terms of hand washing or mask wearing, if those reasonable measures don't work, then it's probably time to see uh, your dermatologist, or at least start off by uh, talking to your primary care doctor. And then if they need some help in um, distinguishing what's going on, then they can send you to your dermatologist. But yes, it, it, it actually can be complicated because there could be a number of things at play. So reasonable measures. What I mean, what would you advise someone to try to prevent this mask knee, if, if you have to wear a mask for a long period of time, is there something you can do beforehand 
that will reduce the chance of irritation? Sure. Um, so we'll go through them. Um, and again, now we're talking about masks, not necessarily hand washing techniques. But uh, so number one, um, you can wash and moisturize your face. So when you wash your face to clean it, you want to use a fragrance-free soap. And uh, then you should thereafter moisturize it to kind of uh, protect the skin, give it sort of a moisturizing barrier, and also um, uh, replace some of the uh, fats, the normal fats or lipids that can be lost with, with washing. And so after you wash your face, we would recommend you use moisturizers that have either ceramides in them, uh, which are kind of like natural oils, or hyaluronic acid, uh, which is also a moisturizing agent, or dimethicone, which is a protective agent. So number one, basically wash and moisturize it. Number two, use a lip balm, because the lips are also subject to the same environmental factors under a mask that could uh, exacerbate skin problems. So use a good uh, lip balm. If uh, you wear makeup, it's probably a good idea to maybe skip using the makeup uh, because the makeups, when they're even occluded with a mask, may uh, contribute to clogging of the skin pores and they may contribute to conditions like acne or other kinds of irritations. So if it's possible to skip the makeup, really because you also have a mask that you're wearing, I would skip the makeup. Um, I would also avoid using harsh products for the first time. So now is perhaps not the time to introduce um, necessarily a new skincare regimen. And there are certain products that can be irritating in the context of a warm kind of occlusive environment of the mask. And so I wouldn't use uh, any peeling agents or uh, retinoids, which are uh, kind of prescription type uh, medications that can also help exfoliate your skin. So you want to try and avoid harsh products, so to speak, for the first time. Unless you have to, I probably, in a similar way, number five, you could say, I would not use uh, products that could potentially be harsh for your face. So for example, uh, for men, uh, if you don't have to wear an aftershave, probably don't wear it because those have a lot of alcohols in them and they can be uh, exacerbating, they can, they, they can uh, irritate. So number six, let's make sure that our masks fit properly, because if they don't fit properly, that can also uh, contribute to the so-called mask knee or skin irritations. So basically, you want something that feels snug. You don't want it to be too loose, but you don't want it to be too tight either. So a good fitting mask. Uh, and sometimes you can get masks that have ear loops that can be adjusted so you can adjust the tightness. Those are pretty good. And uh, to get a snug fit across your nose, some masks have sort of um, like a little metal uh, insert in them that you can mold to your nose. Again, those would help in terms of ensuring a good fit. And you certainly want to clean your mask. Uh, the recommendation is that the cleaning be done after uh, each use. Um, so a good fit is important. Um, I think we're maybe on number seven or so. I've, I've lost track, but it's, it's good if you can take a break from the mask. So for example, for healthcare workers, we have to use them all the time. But if you can take a 15-minute break, maybe every four hours or so, I think that would be helpful. And uh, obviously you have to do that in a safe environment. Uh, maybe you can go outside, you can go to your car, or you can find a room that really no one else goes in. So taking a break is an important. Uh, I would just make a comment that when you wash your mask, you wanna use hot water. Uh, you can either machine or hand wash it. And you want to use fragrance-free or hypoallergenic uh, soaps or detergents. And obviously, just make sure that you're able to wash the mask when, when you buy the mask. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with dermatologist Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate, and we've been talking about um, the impact of the pandemic on our skin 
but I also want to ask you about hand washing um, advice because we're washing our hands probably more than we ever have in the past. What advice do you have to reduce the dryness? The most important um, intervention can be to moisturize. I mean, you know, there's a fine line between infection control and the need to wash and use hand sanitizers and then the resulting uh, irritations or dryness and cracking and fissuring and so forth that can result from that. So I would say as a general rule, I would favor hand washing over using the hand sanitizers. But you want to make sure that you're washing correctly, which means you need to wash with sort of warm water, at the very least, warm to hot, and you need to be using a soap and, and you know washing with your hands and manipulating your hands with the soap for no less than 20 seconds. So we want to make sure if we're not going to use hand sanitizers and we're going to favor hand washing that we do it properly for infection control issues. So after you wash, again, for at least 20 seconds, uh, it's best to pad dry. You don't want to rub dry because, again, um, over the course of the day with the number of hand washings you would have to do, that rubbing causes a lot of friction and it can cause skin injury. So you want to pad dry. And then immediately thereafter, you want to use a moisturizer. And uh, the same kinds of ingredients that I mentioned for the face would apply and be helpful for the hands. That is to say, a, a moisturizer with uh, hyaluronic acid or ceramides or even dimethicone. Um, now, it's sometimes difficult to come across these moisturizers if you're in the hospital or another work setting. Um, I would recommend that if you do find such a moisturizer, you put it in a small kind of pocket-sized uh, container that you can carry with you wherever you go. Uh, similarly, you know, we don't want to ignore um, the issue of hand sanitizing. Uh, but what you know, the hand sanitizers obviously can be very harsh. Uh, and one of the very common ingredients that can cause the, the problems on the skin uh, is if they're alcohol-based. And often what happens is when we put the hand sanitizer on, um, it, it sometimes may sort of collect in the web spaces of the hands. So interestingly, if you wind up having a rash and it starts off in the web spaces, that's highly indicative that it's because of the hand sanitizer. You know, you're putting so much on, you know, for obvious reasons, but it's collecting in those web spaces and it's sitting there and then it's causing an allergy. So uh, if you're to use a hand sanitizer, try and find uh, hand sanitizers that don't have uh, alcohol in them or less of an alcohol content. Apply the hand sanitizer thoroughly, but then make sure it sort of dries into your skin and be particularly mindful of the web spaces that there's not sort of a wet dollop there that remains. And I would say after the hand sanitizer uh, is absorbed, and they absorb rather quickly, then you can use the moisturizer thereafter, just like as if you were washing your hands. Um, you know, none of these are perfect solutions, but I, I think they're, uh, they're pretty good and they can go a long way in terms of the sustainability of these hand washing techniques. Let's talk about COVID-19. Are there dermatologic manifestations of this disease that you've seen? Um, yes, we, we've seen some. Um, and they basically relate to uh, either inflammatory or vascular changes. So it seems that this virus induces some changes in the blood vessels, um, the microscopic small blood vessels of the skin, and uh, the resulting um, uh, lesions are called purpuric lesions. That means the blood vessels are injured, and there's some bleeding into the skin, and you see it as these red marks on the skin. So that's one category of uh, skin rashes. The other category of skin rashes uh, seems to be like an immune reaction. So red rashes or hive-like rashes 
are things that you can also see um, uh, that occur on the skin in patients with COVID. I would say that um, most people do not get skin rashes if they have COVID. I mean, it's not the majority of patients. It may be something on the order of, um, you know, 10 to 20% or so. So uh, the skin can be a secondary finding, uh, but it would be difficult to make a diagnosis of COVID-19 uh, just from the skin alone. Uh, and usually when we've been called uh, to make a determination whether there's a COVID finding or not, it's usually in patients who are quite sick and in the hospital. I have not, as an outpatient setting, I've seen these types of COVID rashes. Oh, that's good to know. Now, during the pandemic, many doctor's offices have been using telemedicine. So I wonder how that's working in your dermatology practice. Yeah, so it's it's actually worked um, quite well. Uh, it has its positives and it has its negatives. And, you know, the bottom line is not just dermatologists, but almost all doctors had to sort of shotgun uh, um, apply uh, and use telemedicine under uh, somewhat of a crisis situation. So we didn't really have time to roll it out in a controlled way. We sort of just had to do it because uh, it was that or nothing at all. And I think from the dermatologist's point of view, uh, and we actually kind of did a study on this recently, there are a couple of take-home points. Uh, the first take-home point is that it seems that the no-show rate for teledermatology is much better than the no-show rate of actually coming into the clinic. In other words, people who make a teledermatology appointment, they're far away much more likely to be there at the time of the visit rather than not show up to the clinic. So that's a positive. The other thing that we found is that most dermatologists feel a hybrid model works best. In other words, using both a video component and digital pictures. And I can tell you from personal experience, you know, the digital component was very helpful in getting a story and a good history and kind of uh, establishing a relationship as best as we could remotely. But the digital pictures provided much better quality resolution. So if we needed to look at something in detail, we really needed those pictures. And so we found that this hybrid model of both video and digital pictures work best. And we also find uh, that uh, teledermatology works very well for chronic kind of stable conditions and rashes. So things like acne or chronic atopic dermatitis or chronic psoriasis, those can be very nicely handled with teledermatology. It starts to break down if you're trying to uh, evaluate individual lesions uh, and ruling out skin cancers. Uh, until we get our protocols in place, uh, it's prob I would probably not recommend it to, uh, to, to do lesion evaluation as the sole evaluation. In other words, I mean, if you ask your dermatologist about a spot, they can give you an opinion, but I think personally it must be followed up by a real uh, person visit when uh, the pandemic allows it, because I think uh, you're likely to miss something at one point if you just do it with teledermatology. So that's kind of the summary of, of our study uh, that's going to be published soon, and it sort of uh, mirrors my personal experience as well. Thank you to Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's the Division Chief of Dermatology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. What you can do to improve your wellness while working from home. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
Because of the pandemic, many people who can are doing their jobs from their homes. They may realize benefits and challenges to this arrangement. Here with advice for coping with telework is Dr. Koshal Nanabadi. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate and an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine and the Medical Director of Integrative Therapy. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nanabadi. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I'd like to start by focusing on work-life balance. Um, there's some potential positives working from home, right? What we found is that, you know, for many, many companies, uh, as a result of COVID and this pandemic, uh, they're having a lot more employees work from home. And for many people, it gives them a little more flexibility uh, in how they navigate and negotiate their day which they might not have had otherwise when they had to punch in the clock and punch it out. Uh, so there's definitely some benefit that comes with this new approach. Uh, and I think we have to figure out how to optimize it. We do know that the data suggests people have been more productive uh, and people have actually had early on, especially people were happier as well. And I think as this time has gone on, we started to see a little bit of a change in that. And and there's some drawbacks working at home as well, right? Even well, if your, your productivity absolutely. may go up, but because you're working all the time, right? And that's the thing is you know, uh, when people uh, aren't sticking to routines, sometimes that happens. Uh, you know, I've talked to some of my patients who said, you know, I didn't even realize it was like 8 o'clock at night and I was just going, going, going. Whereas when you're at work, uh, you recognize that the place starts to empty out, you know, and it's time to get going or, you know, plan dinner, et cetera. Uh, and so there are definitely some tips, I think, that people can take away from this, uh, especially as many companies are either encouraging or accommodating work from home as a natural part of their process moving forward. Um, there are definitely going to be some rules of engagement, I think, that will help people to be able to find that new balance, you know, in a way. Well, I like that phrase, rules of engagement. Let's talk about what some of those could be, things that are um, maybe boundaries to help keep our work and home worlds separate. All right, so I'll, I'll tell you a couple of, uh, and I'll say a couple of fun things, and then we'll talk about it, right? Stop binging on Netflix, okay? Uh, let me repeat that, stop binging on Netflix, right? The other thing is put your pants on, right? I joke about this, but, you know, a lot of people uh, think that working from home means, you know, they can have their pajamas on all day, et cetera. Or, you know, you just get up and roll onto your desk with your cup of tea or coffee or water or whatever you drink, hopefully not soda. Uh, that's just my little health plug. Uh, but uh, that being said, keeping rituals and routines is important. So, number one, think about sleep, right? Keeping a consistent sleep schedule uh, is important because we know our circadian rhythm, our hormone systems in the body, all of these require a consistency. Otherwise, we live in a higher stress state, right? So that's really important. Uh, then designating a workspace, right? So if you're just chilling on your couch, you know, with your pajamas on and you've got the TV in the background, you got your laptop on your lap uh, and you think you're going to be as productive and working, Unfortunately, that's not the healthiest for our physical health, uh, for back pain, things like that. Uh, and so it's really important to get a designated workspace uh, and the ergonomics. You know, at work, there are different ergonomics. And at home, people didn't have office spaces designed to work eight hours a day or longer. And so now you have to think about the chair you sit in, the desk. Do we have adjustable heights? Is the screen on your computer, home, or laptop? Oftentimes, if it's a laptop, you're looking down, right? And so if you're looking down, that's going to affect your back, your shoulders, posture, uh, all of those things as well. So, uh, you know, that's really important. Some people think, well, I can sleep an extra half hour because I don't have to drive into work. But in fact, using that time, waking up at the same time, and then having a work, you know, commute, uh, that's a time for reflection, sitting. Uh, some people like to meditate, listen to music. Uh, looking out the window, uh, you know, it still gives you that ritual time to shift your mindset from the arousal and waking up to getting to the working mindset, right? So that's really important as well. 
And that's just getting the day going. Then as the day goes on and you think about, you know, during the day when we're at work, we're often talking to people who are getting up and, and going to get water, et cetera. We have to plan for breaks during the day also. Um, because if we don't do that and we just stay stuck to the screen, that's not great for our eyes. It's not great for our posture. It's not great for our psyche. And so taking breaks, whether it be to stretch, right, or to do some yoga or just going a little 15-minute walk. Uh, right now, the weather for much of the country uh, is actually not bad where you can in the mid-morning and later in the afternoon get outside for a little bit of a walk. 10 minutes, 15 minutes can be very rejuvenating. Uh, and so that's important. And then people tend to munch, right? They tend to nosh. Uh, you know, the little leftovers that were in the fridge, some of which might not be the healthiest, but they sure as heck were tasty. You know, suddenly they end up right next to you at your computer while you're working, and now you don't even pay attention to what you've been putting in your mouth. So taking the time to actually plan a meal and to make the meal and taking a lunch break, right, uh, away from the work desk or the work center, uh, you know, these are important things. Uh, and exercise, we always say, regardless of whether you're working in the office or you're working from home, if it's not an appointment, it becomes an add-on. And when you have an add-on, the problem with that is, is then it gets forgotten or something else, you know, consumes your time. And so having a designated time that you set aside for exercise, physical activity daily is actually a good way to do it. You know, I talk, talk about uh, living by the rule of sevens, right, which is to get seven hours of sleep a night. The recommendation is seven to nine, so at least seven hours. And then we think about at least seven servings of vegetables a day. Uh, according to Harvard Healthy Eating Plate, they talk about approximately eight. So if we, you know, aim for seven to nine, uh, that's great. The Cardiology Association actually talks about five servings. So if you aim a little bit higher, uh, even if you don't quite hit the mark, you've still got a great opportunity to get vegetables in. And then seven hours of exercise a week, right? Which means if you plan for it, uh, it's achievable. But if you think that you're just going to see how it happens or what happens, uh, it's less likely to happen. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate. So I'm talking with him about wellness advice for those who suddenly find themselves working from home. Now, one other challenge we haven't really talked about is the uh, lure of being distracted by your pets or your kids or other things about the house, the laundry that's piled up, the, there's the temptation to, you know, do household stuff. Is there, a, is there a way to kind of avoid those distractions? Yeah, so you can, in a sense, I'll say avoid by embracing, okay? Um, and what I mean by that is the fact that, you know, your pets are your joy. And oftentimes they're very relaxing for many people. But you have things like taking them for walks, et cetera, which can be your planned times away, right? Uh, so that kind of gets two things done at once. You get the time away from the workspace, and at the same time, you spend time with your pet. Uh, with children, uh, you know, some of the challenges that people have found is if there were, you know, double, um, you know, income families where people were working outside of the home, the children were at school or daycare, et cetera. Now that's not as much of a possibility. So for people where there are two people working from home, it's very important to stagger the schedule so that we can support uh, our children as well while they're getting activities done. Uh, you know, and, and that way you can prioritize their time. Uh, some people have done things like at lunchtime, you know, they take an hour uh, and they can have a half hour to eat and then a half hour to either spend time reading or play, et cetera so that they can figure that out and set the time schedule for their children for the afternoon. Uh, so that can be beneficial. Uh, for employers, one of the important things when employees are working from home is to actually think about connecting, right? So I don't like to play social distancing at all. I think it actually sends a wrong signal. Uh, I think about it as physical distancing, but social engagement, right? Uh, we're social creatures and actually we know one of the keys the sustained happiness is meaningful relationships. And so for meaningful relationships, we have to connect with people who bring meaning and value in our life. 
uh, and those are things that can be scheduled. I think people who are bosses or managers or team leaders should actually create opportunities for engagement of groups. In fact, if they do, you know, WebEx or Zoom meetings, that's a great time to actually let your pet in uh, to the room, right? So that, you know, you can be playing with them a little bit or show them to your team. And that actually oftentimes brings relaxation to the team also because it kind of eases the tension, right, of just talking about work. Uh, it's sort of like when we bring pictures of our children if we have them, you know, if they've graduated or done something nice and show them to our coworkers. Oftentimes it allows for a greater bond uh, and it brings joy to the environment. Well, I was going to ask you about um, the person who's been able to set up a, a really nice workspace at home and they're not interrupted and they're able to get things done and everything seems to be going well. That person may struggle with professional isolation. I mean, what you described about having regular meetings that where people can see face to face over Zoom or something, that's one way to sort of combat that. Are, do you have any suggestions for the individual who is feeling isolated and out of the loop? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Connection is important, but oftentimes people still feel that sense of, you know what, I'm getting burned out of just sitting in front of this computer every day. And just, you know, and so what we often do and, and corporations and companies have employee assistance programs uh, and other things that they can do as well. But this is where the thought of personal resilience, right? and self-responsibility comes in as well. And that's not a negative term, but it's about recognizing when you're starting to feel that way and utilizing tools such as free apps for mindfulness or meditation or yoga. In fact, signing up, right, for live online classes, uh, whether it be for workout or anything like that, because then what happens is suddenly, you know, the three of us on my screen right now, suddenly we're all doing jumping jacks, right? And one, it's going to make you laugh at me doing them, right? And two is that we're connected and we're engaged. I think that's one of the important things is people get so zoned in. Like, you know what? Now I've got all the time. I'm just going to get things done. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. But shut off time should also be respected. Otherwise, it ends up being midnight, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. And now you've shifted your schedule so much that sleep gets affected. That affects your circadian rhythm which has an impact on serotonin, cortisol, melatonin in the body, which affects your metabolism as well, your energy level the next day as well. And then that cycle feeds itself, which triggers things like anxiety as well. Do you think that some people are just programmed to work well independently and that there's some people that really thrive when they're around others? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we're finding that out more, right, during this time. Because some people are like, this is great. I've got my routine. I'm good to go, et cetera. And others are like, when do I get to come back? I can't do this. You know, I'm getting worn out. You know, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. Uh, the point is, we don't have a clear timeline on this at this time. And so I think it's up to an individual to recognize that they're not liking the current setup and to reach out. But also, I think it behooves organizations and managers to really reach out to their team members to say, hey, how you doing, right? And that's where those social engagements, even just casual social hours or connecting with groups that have like-minded interests, right? I actually saw a thing for virtual volunteering um, as an opportunity where, you know, if you're engaged in the service of others, generally you feel better about yourself as well. Uh, and so for people that are feeling stressed, distressed, isolated, sometimes there's the joy of giving comes back manifold. Uh, and that's a great way to think about it as well. Uh, are there warning signs that people need to be aware of if they're just, they're struggling to get through this and it's, it's rough on everyone, but are there warning signs that maybe it's, it's a serious thing you need to have help with? Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, the things we think about in terms of if sleep is getting affected or not, you're not able to sleep or your mind just constantly going, right? Or you're getting up in the middle of the night to get back to doing your work. Uh, so, you know, or you start losing interest in doing your work at all, right? Uh, if you feel like, you know, during the day, you feel like you got to take more naps, which you never did, uh, you know, those things are important. If you start to feel like you're getting more 
chippy or edgy, uh, you know, when you're communicating with people or talking to people, uh, you know, these are all important things to think about. We think about sleep, we think about interest in daily activities, uh, we think about even feelings of, you know, overwhelm or guilt or disengagement, right? So somebody starts to feel like this is hopeless or they feel like I'm, I'm helpless in this, I can't take care of anything, or they're starting to feel like, you know what, I'm here all alone, I don't even know what my value or what my worth is. So those words that we associate with things like major depression, a feeling of helplessness, hopelessness, or worthlessness, uh, these are all things that if somebody starts to feel this, they should definitely reach out. And this is also why I think, you know, if organizations can cast a broader net to check in, uh, then we can catch some of these things before they become more serious or severe. And obviously, if somebody has any thoughts of doing harm to themselves uh, or feels like they're having more anxiety, then they should definitely be reaching out um, ASAP. They can reach out, you know, to the Employee Assistance Program uh, and or to their county health department for resources. Right now, most counties around the United States on their websites have phone numbers and resources for people to access. Uh, or somebody can always call 911 and be connected with them as well. Well, this has been very encouraging and very useful. Um, I want to thank Dr. Koshal Nanavati, the Assistant Dean of Wellness at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. How are college campuses limiting the spread of the novel coronavirus? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine has created several resources to help prevent and limit transmission of the COVID-19 virus. And with school about to resume, I'm speaking with the people who led that effort. Dr. Talisa Stewart is a doctor of public health and an associate professor in Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine and she has more than two decades of experience creating public health programs. And Alyssa Indelicata is part of the professional staff in that department. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Hello, thanks for having us. Well, I wanna let listeners know they can find the resources we're gonna talk about at upstate.edu slash public health in a tab called COVID-19. I checked on it before, and it's a very well-organized um, binders, virtual binders. But please tell us what they'll find in these virtual binders. Dr. Stewart? Thank you. So the binders themselves have, um, have a lot of different information in them, and they're for specifically for college campuses. The binders cover information about four different health prevention strategies to prevent COVID, which include hand washing, face masks, social distancing, and self-monitoring. So for each one of those domains, we cover health education information. How do we educate the community? We cover how to change behavior for long-term. We cover the policies of how to put you know, different policies into place at the institutional level, and we cover how to measure the change. So how did you choose those four particular domains? So to prevent COVID that we know that hand washing, social distancing, facial masks, and self-monitoring all work. So we really are focused in on those topics. Okay, and this is Alyssa I'm speaking with. So uh, something that in, went into this was a lot of research on your part, sort of looking at what's out there, right? Yeah, so there's a team of us, uh, myself, uh, Alyssa, who is, who is with us, um, and a few others who joined in in the effort, and we conducted a full literature review on how to best uh, educate the population, what kind of behavioral interventions we could put into place and how best to measure it. And I think what's what's interesting here is that 
you know, hand washing, for example, has been around for a long time. So there's quite a bit of literature on that that we could pull from. Although we don't have specific data for COVID, and we, we're starting to see that emerge now, uh, we, we've been able to kind of ex extrapolate and use that information that's just been the standard practice for hand washing. Unlike social distancing, where there's less there's less research on social distancing. How do you do it? How do you educate people? How do you keep them that, that behavior going for longer periods of time? That um, that was more challenging. So, but we've been able to use different disease profiles uh, to um, build that the research um, for these institutions to use. I saw that you were describing something called the logic model. What what is that? Essentially, it's a grid, and it, it identifies the resources that you need for your intervention. It identifies the activities that go into any kind of program. And for this program, we the standard activities are you have education, because we know that knowledge is important, but we also know that knowledge alone doesn't change behavior. So that's one piece in the activity. We have the part that changes behavior, which is the behavioral intervention, and we know that even though we have knowledge and we have behavior change, we know that our environment uh, also influences how we behave. So we have information about how to change policy. And with each one of those programs, those activities, we wanna make sure that people have, uh, their short-term outcome is they have awareness, they have knowledge, they have a good attitude about it, and they have a skill set to do whatever behavior we want them to do. And then that leads to a longer-term behavior and eventually it leads to the prevention of COVID. So those that particular tool, the logic model, helps us map those things out. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Talisa Stewart, a doctor of public health, and Alyssa Indelicata from the professional staff in Upstate's public health program about considerations for returning to college campuses during the pandemic. And the resources we're talking about are available at upstate.edu slash public health in a tab called COVID-19. So let's talk a little more about hand washing. If the goal is to increase hand washing among college students, what are some of the ways that you list about accomplishing that? Alyssa? So we have a few behavioral interventions that we used in our hand washing program. Uh, one of these is gamification, which really uses games to motivate individuals to change their behavior. Our program specifically suggests games such as hand washing trivia and raffles as ways to engage people, um, specifically the college uh, community. Decision prompt interventions are also used to change behavior. And this is where you place motivational signs in different areas where people um, have, a, have a choice between two behaviors. So in the instance of hand washing, this would be when you're leaving a restroom or passing a sink, and that's where you wanna place your hand washing message. So these um, are mostly aimed at students. Or do they also apply to staff and um, everyone on a college campus? Yeah, the same behavior should apply to every community member. The message that people have never heard before is better or worse than reiterating messages that they've probably heard a thousand times. Well, it is good to reiterate your message, but what you need to do is figure out a new way of saying the message or else people are going to become desensitized to it and not really hear it. One of the things that we do uh, when we create these behavioral messages is that we map them to the health belief model. So the health belief model uh, is a model that we use in public health uh, that we know um, shows us what kind of areas we need to focus in on. So one of those areas is the perception of risk. Uh, we know that people who have low perception of risk are less likely to do a behavior. So some of our messages target risk perception. And so we map all of these messages out. We map them through the logic model, like what we talked about before. And then we also map them through the health belief model. And so when we identify uh, the different domains of what we need to, uh, to address, we create health messages from there. And what um, 
one of the things that we try to do is we try to bring new information to people. And as Alyssa talked about, people become desensitized. So they see a message and it might stick the first time and then the next time they see it, they say, oh yeah. And then the third time they just don't acknowledge it. And so by changing out the messages regularly and by giving them new tidbits of information, people stay engaged with the same topic. So what resources do you offer on mask usage and what are some of your messages about that? Is it just to get people to wear them or is it to make sure they wear them properly or that they clean them? Yeah, so every program that we have, the four programs that we have, which again is the face masking, social distancing, hand washing and self-monitoring, each one of those programs has a series of messages. They have a series of between eight to 12 messages, and those messages have been mapped scientifically to the health belief model and in the logic model. Um, those messages, the information in those messages are, are driven from evidence-based uh, research that we, that we find in the literature. So they're all, each program is different depending on the domain, um, but we cover, all, we cover things from what is it? You know, what is the topic? What is hand washing? What is face mask use? What is social distancing? What is self-monitoring? And then we cover how do you do it and all the steps that need to go into that process and then why you would want to go about doing it. And so we cover those and it depends on the research that's out there and how complicated the behavior is, how many messages that go into that campaign. So it seems to me, the social distancing, it seems to me that one might be the most difficult on a college campus. Does it, does it mean that there's not going to be any socializing on campuses? Alyssa? Um, no, people should, you know, they still need to socialize and there will be socialization. Um, but the trick is it, to it is staying six feet apart and wearing a face mask. Well, what's important to know about self-monitoring? So self-monitoring is really about knowing yourself. Um, you could have some of these symptoms, but at the end of the day, you really need to know what is normal for you. And if you start to realize you're getting some of these abnormal symptoms, that's when you should start self-monitoring. I think for self-monitoring, uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization have both promoted the idea of self-monitoring, their steps are very similar. Each college campus has a different uh, recommendation or policy that they've put into place. So they really should be following the recommendations that each university is putting out. The health messages and the programs that we've put together uh, educate the community on what self-monitoring is. It's a new behavior, so a lot of people just don't recognize it. Uh, and so we walk them through the process of how to do it, when to do it, what does it look like, what kind of form do you use, uh, and then when should you talk to your doctor. Thank you to Dr. Talissa Stewart and Alyssa Indelicato from Upstate's Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine. I'm Amber Smith from Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Nina Bannett is a poet and professor of English at NYC College of Technology. Her complex and beautiful poem, My Mother and Ellen West, allude to an early patient of psychoanalysis, Ellen West, who became only the sum of her many diagnoses, none of which ever explained or contained her. My mother and Ellen West. In the hospital, I watched them objectify, reduce her to a large mass of unknown origins, students coming in to chat and learn from the end of someone dear. Thank you for taking the pain out of my day. In another context, her assertion could have functioned as a suicide note. Ellen West leaves the hospital and dies internalizes her desire not to be. The clinician in each of us wants to reach out, smooth over the soul, 
strive for fullness, an attachment to me. I had her own notes of the self. I threw them out. I thought the time she spent on them wasteful, the categorization, all that mindfulness, overwhelming inner material that I could have fashioned, a walk through fire. The hospital is an object that cannot contain the subject. All my life I've known this fear. The object is the subject. My mother was a series of index cards where she recorded feelings, the nurse's psychiatric notes, treatment plans, all these organized around an interior, the self. Not just its parts, but her whole. I am a second person from a first person who changed the first person to a second manic person, then a third depressed person. I was interior, then exterior, then interior as exterior. She was my interior, my mother, the application of a series of psychiatric principles, my walk through her fire, my inner material. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a parent and pediatrician talks about kids returning to school during the pandemic. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.